In today's episode, we discuss truth and how to find it, the balance between faith, logic, and science, the dangers of pure logic and dogma, and the state of modern philosophy. I really think you'll enjoy today's episode, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by IcePod, finally an affordable, portable, and effective way to get the benefits of cold water immersion in the comfort of your own home. I opted for the Pro Bundle, which includes the IcePod, a water circulating pump, a special insulated lid, and a thermometer to check the temp of your water. Even in Georgia, the IcePod keeps my water between 60 and 70 degrees, and when I load it up with a 36-pack of water bottles that I use and refreeze after each session, I can easily get it around 50 degrees for the perfect cold water immersion experience. Despite being light and portable, the IcePod is super durable, and it's the perfect solution for anyone who wants to experience the benefits of cold water immersion without spending thousands of dollars for a home water chiller or trying to DIY your own. Cold immersion can help with recovery and muscle soreness, raise dopamine levels, help you wake up and be more alert, help you to burn more calories, mobilize brown fat, and more. Visit podcompany.com and use my special promo code SHANE50107 for $10 off your order, and each sale helps to support the show as well. Stay cool out there, people. Are you looking for the perfect high-protein snack that isn't loaded with stuff like MSG, nitrates, and sugar? Carnivore Snacks is the perfect high-protein snack made from quality grass-fed beef and salt. That's it. Each bag uses one pound of high-quality beef, lamb, pork, or chicken, salt, and nothing else. Aside from being easy, healthy, and convenient, they also taste great. These snacks are not just another jerky. They are way better. Give a bag a try, and I know you'll keep coming back. Check out Carnivore Snacks, spelled with an X, dot com, and enter coupon code SHANE05137 for 15% off your order, and each sale will help support the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast as well. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, where ancient and modern wisdom come together to create a better way of living. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and each week we speak with successful people from a plethora of disciplines in search of wisdom from their own lives. Your own personal renaissance begins today. Let wisdom be your guide. Hey everybody, welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen. I'm here with today's guest, Drew Weatherhead. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Shane? I'm doing well. Um, I know we talked, I had a little bit of a laundry crisis this morning, but we're we're good to go now. So uh, why don't you just start out by giving us a little bit about you and your background, introduce yourself. Sure. So uh, depending on where you want to go with this, I could give you like five different things. This is part of the interesting <laughs> things about trying to define yourself <laughs> is sure. uh, I guess probably a mutual um, consideration is uh, we're both jujitsu black belts. So a lot of people know me through that space. I've got a, uh, a personal jujitsu page on Instagram as well as a large jujitsu meme page, which is where a lot of people know me through. So uh, that's one side of things. Another side of things is, as you can tell, if you're watching the video right now, I'm recording on the road in my truck because uh, we live full time on the road. So I've got me and my family of six that live in a travel trailer and we travel around North America uh, throughout the year. Awesome. 
That, that's very cool. I actually didn't know that. Um, I think a lot of people have that that dream these days, right? Like, especially with with home prices the way they are. Um, I, I was shopping for a condo a while back, like last year, and when I was, it was like right in the peak of the insanity of the that kind of like a housing market. So, I put in offers, I think, on six places, and I'd always come in with like pre-approved financing, like really good, strong offer, and they'd be like, "Sorry, you know, some investor came in and." offered to pay $15,000 above what we were asking with cash. So there was like a period where I was kind of running the numbers. And I'm like, man, you know, I could just get like a nice little Mercedes van and just outfit it and like hook up to the back of one of my gyms and uh, save money. But uh, so that's pretty cool. How do you, how do you like living on the road that way? It's its own lifestyle for sure. Like there's there's yeah. definitely pros and cons. Everybody focuses on the pros, but there's definitely cons as well. But I'm sure. uh, we've been doing it for about two years now, so we've we've worked out the kinks, and uh, you know, it it is what it is. It's what obviously the the interesting part is that you see so many new places on the jujitsu sense. I get to train with a bunch of different people and sort of look for the the interesting gyms around the areas where I go. Um, but more or less, it is what you think it is it's it's mobile and it's cheap yeah cool so what what are you working on now like what what projects do you have going on i know you have um like the the social disorder podcast what else do you have going on yeah like i said i hadn't to run down all of the different uh parts of me sides <laughs> of me hats that i wear would take a while but yeah i do have a full-time podcast i do um i'm working on a second book right now so it's another thing we're going to get into is i've uh, authored at least one book so far and about a half of another one that i'm working through um the first one was called consciousness reality and purpose and it goes through those three major focuses um through about nine chapters for each so uh, lots of interesting stuff in there that i've both discovered researched uh come to conclusions on my own with and then the one that i'm working on right now is focusing particularly on truth and uh getting deep mm. into the weeds on that as both a concept and uh, a truth interesting um i i know I, I didn't get a chance to fully read through your book i did you know skim through kind of pick pick some questions out and read some of the chapters it's it's interesting because a lot of the stuff that you write about are some of the things that I've been studying independently and going through recently. Just a lot of, I guess it's hard to classify some of the thoughts in there, but mentalism, the idea of the universe being energy. Um, I know we, we won't delve into it too much, but like hermeticism and some of the different concepts that you had in there, it's a, uh, it's, it's a good, I think, intro to that, to that line of thinking for anyone. It's, Got a, got a lot of ideas and you think you put everything together in a way where it's sort of bite sized and broken down where somebody can get into some of these deeper concepts and, and go into, which, uh, you know, even the way you ended it off reminds me a little bit of my book where it's kind of like, hey, this is not intended to be this fully comprehensive thing, but you're you're meant to be introduced to a lot of ideas and kind of go out there and research and form your own opinion. So. I, I like yeah, that absolutely. As well. That that was my entire intention. Is I didn't want it to be an explanation. I wanted it to be an exploration, so people can be introduced to a bunch of different disparate ideas, schools of thought, without uh, me either planting my flag down on any given one of them or forcing anybody else to do the same. And I think that that is a great way to cause somebody to do their own thinking, which really is, I think, the best version of learning to begin with. For sure. 
And I, I know you mentioned your new project is is truth. So uh, if if you're claiming truth, that's going to be a little bit of a, uh, a a different standpoint, right? I mean, if it's if it's truth, it has to be. I, I don't know. You can't you can't argue with truth, right? Truth is just truth. Or is it? Well, yeah. The, I mean, this is the thing. This one is a much more difficult book. I'll put it to you that way. Yeah. If the last one was an exploration, this one has to be explanatory because um, there are schools of thought. And I know that you are uh, much more steeped in ancient wisdom. Um, the modern wisdom gets really funky and weird. And yes. yeah. uh, I know that we both have our issues with certain schools in those thoughts, the postmodernists, the deconstructionists. And uh, their lines of thinking when it comes to truth are obtuse, to say the least. Like they, um, besides the fact that a lot of them don't claim that there is objective truth, which is uh, an incredible claim to try to make and try to back up. But there are certain parts of their lines of thinking that you have to take into account if you want to have a holistic view of truth, because certain parts of subjectivity and perspective actually play into the accounts when we're going into some significant moral and ethic, ethical, um, philosophical areas. Definitely. I, I have a lot of the same thoughts and feelings on modern philosophy. I think it's, t to me, it's really gone down a road of uh, just total subjectivity. And well, like logically, I can follow it. And I understand why we've gotten there. There, it, it does beg the question of, you know, if, if nothing is true, if there is no truth, if everything is, you know, permissible, then everything is permitted. And we're seeing the effects of some of that stuff in our society as everything's just starting to decay and break down. If, if there's nothing that can bring people together and everything is totally subjective, we just have a completely fractured reality. So I guess, um, yeah. you know, one of the questions I had for you, which, you know, maybe it's up your alley with the book that you're working on is I, and I know you could probably go on with this question for a while, but I, how can you know what's true? How do you, how do you find truth? Well, Typically, historically, and uh, both up our alleys, this is generally the realm of philosophy. So I'm, I'm sure as most of your listeners know, it's philosophy, even the word itself speaks exactly to that. Philosophia is the, the love of wisdom. And wisdom itself um, is quite obviously differentiated from knowledge. Um, and people can get those two conflated. And I think they often do. And people, especially that mm -hmm. have a ton of knowledge in one or two specific areas, they consider themselves wise. But the difference between wisdom and knowledge has everything to do with discernment. And discernment is the, the actuator, the, the vector, the, um, the mechanism of wisdom that leads somebody to truth. You, like it's so difficult to, to figure out what is true. If you've got 10 things in front of you all claiming to be the truth about a single thing and you know there has to be, you know, difference between them, how do you understand or how do you differentiate? And that comes down to discernment that I think is is really the avenue of wisdom. So to try to cultivate the understanding of how to get to wisdom and, you know, um, the classics, the the Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, they speak broadly to these, as well as the Stoics. Um, if you need to find truth, um, you really do need wisdom. Now, the, the question then becomes, where is the difference between the postmodernists when they're talking about truth and what the ancients are talking about? Because I think that both have a place in the conversation, but there is a 
uh, problem that happens, a pernicious problem. I think people use this to their advantage often uh, where they conflate the two. And so I've been trying to figure out like where exactly is the interplay between absolute transcendental truth and subjective truth or prescribed truth or constructed truth. And there I've, I've built this into my own thought processes of, of my own concept that differentiates things by layers. And I think that that is the correct way to look at it because if you are to start with a, a totalized concept of, of absolute truth, total truth. And I do in this book, I say that there is total truth because if there is total reality and there is something true about every single part of it, that means that there is a total truth. And I tried to find a term that works best with that. And just the word truth, it's, it's not the right definition in the English language. I actually ended up going to the Hebrew and found a word called emet, and emet is made up of three of their letters, the first, the middle, and the last letter in their alphabet. And that's supposed to represent that it is the entire truth. When they're talking about emet, it is everything that is true. It's the total, absolute, transcendental, objective truth. And seeing that that's the case, understanding or starting from that data and points that that is a thing. Now, the interesting thing becomes if total reality exists and we can only ever reach certain parts of it, that means that we can't actually ever know the total truth. And so where do we find ourselves if not in a subjective stance where everybody is trying to build out their perspective of what they think total truth is between every layer that exists within it? And this is the difficulty of trying to write this book is mm -hmm. both defining what total truth is while at the same time recognizing that every single person is building out what what amounts to a proprietary ontology based upon the truths that they come across very 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 well said and it's you know i've, I've often thought about the same thing that if if truth, like to me, like truth or true understanding of truth, which like you said, maybe, maybe that's not even the right word for it. Cause it, it's, it's hard to even define. Um, it, it would kind of have to be something that is beyond interpretation, right? Like it would have to be something that could only be arrived at with a total understanding of everything, which mm -hmm. we can never have a total understanding of everything. We can never, uh, there's never going to be a, a human being that's going to live. That's going to know every single thing that happened in the past that happened in the future. That's happening in the present that understands every law of the universe that understands creation that understands. And I guess that's where I've always kind of felt like if there is a truth, if there is a objective truth, it has to be given from an outside source. Uh, which, mm. which is actually part of, you know, I guess part of my spiritual, uh, journey over the last couple months is that I, I went down a, a rabbit hole and I know you wanted to talk about Nietzsche. So this is kind of a good entry point too. you know, Nietzsche, it, he still is my favorite philosopher because I think that when it comes to a true Western philosophy, I think that Nietzsche is the, the, by far the least dogmatic, um, the most truthful the, probably the most open-minded. And <clears throat> I, I think that his, his philosophy is very powerful because Nietzsche takes you down the road of essentially total subjectivity, 
right? That they're, they're he he tells us that God is dead, and he doesn't necessarily celebrate that. That's one of the misunderstandings with Nietzsche. Is he he's actually lamenting it because he realizes that God was sort of the glue that held together society. Now Nietzsche was raised up uh, actually like in the church, and he had a really like traumatic fatherhood or uh, childhood. Like his father died. I think his father was a preacher and died at a young age. And yeah, he died I think early he, too, 35, yeah, I think. Yeah, really, really young. And, uh, you know, he, he had some serious problems with Christianity and the, the church and the Christian faith, uh, you know, and a lot of his issues with Christianity were were dogma. The same issue that he had with Stoicism, right, was, was dogma. He didn't like when people just sort of had faith in things. Uh, and he kind of breaks everything down to a total subjectivity. And he tells us that there is this power within us, this this will, the will to power. And this is the ultimate form of existence. Uh, you know, it, it, it comes from like Schopenhauer and the the the, the will of existence that's that's within you. And I guess he, he sort of looks at philosophy and he says, we used to have the Greeks and they had the the Dionysian celebration, which is the celebration of the emotion, the primal, the the it's it's the god of of drunkenness and wine. And we also had the god Apollo, and the god Apollo was the the god of wisdom, the god of logic, purely purely kind of like right brain sort of living. And he tells us that the Greeks used to celebrate both; that there was sort of a balance between the two. And he actually was very critical of, of Socrates and Plato because he says they, they took us down this purely logical right brain sort of path. And we neglected this deeper emotional primal part of ourselves. And so his call was essentially to reawaken this, this will to power, to become, to express your highest capabilities. And he thought that the right brain and particularly Christianity dogma was the thing that was sort of destroying that in our Western culture. So the idea that you have to live a moral life, that you should be humble and keep your ego in check. Uh, the fact that you shouldn't celebrate achievement or worldly gain. These things were an inversion of the deeper kind of primal part of ourselves that wants to express itself through the will to power. And so when I was uh, sort of, when I had committed myself to the idea that everything was subjective, Nietzsche to me was the ultimate philosophy because it's basically, I'm going to strip away everything. I'm going to strip away my preconceived notions, my ideas of even basic ideas like morality, for example. And I'm going to build my own philosophy that is centered around my ultimate self-expression. Now, there, there's room for subjectivity there, right? Because one person could use that philosophy and they could justify uh, Nazism, right? For example, uh, it, it's not unknown that uh, Hitler, you know, gave out copies of the will to power to some of his generals. Now, Nietzsche himself wasn't a Nazi. His sister was, and she was in charge of his work. So that's part of where that misconception comes from, that he was supportive but because it's so subjective yeah, he died it can before be the nazi to, party he died in the 1900s right, right. so it, it's because it's so subjective it can be used to basically justify i mean what whatever line of thinking you want right i mean you could be a 
a, a Christian monk aesthetic and you could believe in Nietzsche's philosophy or you could be, uh, you know, a, a communist uh, in 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 the 1930s in Russia and you could use that to justify your philosophy. So I think that that's a bit where the danger is. And my personal inclination has always been towards, you know, not causing harm to people and wanting to help people. And I think these are maybe some of those truths that you talked about, right? That even though like they are subjective, I think that there maybe are parts of ourselves and parts of our inner being and some of that like Dionysian sort of emotional impulse that's within us that actually compels us to to do good things. And when I say good, I say good in the sense of like traditional moral values. Um, and mm-hmm. what what happened to me was going down that path of the Dionysian. Um, I was newly single. I was out of a relationship. I sort of just kind of like went nuts. Like I, I kind of went down like, like just fuck boy phase, right? Like I just, I was on Tinder. I was just trying to have sex with everything I possibly could. Um, you know, I, I bought this condo. I, you know, decorated it out. I was thinking about getting this like convertible BMW. It was blacked out rims. And I, I was really celebrating that like will to power. Like I'm just going to go out and conquer the world. And, you know, I, I met a, a really amazing woman that I think grounded me and kind of brought me back to who I actually am. And I, I guess that that's, you know, that's the danger. That's what I would caution is that Nietzsche's philosophy, I think ultimately empowers the primalistic animal part of ourselves. And I think that we're very, we're very unique beings in the sense that we're a physical body with physical demands and and temptations and desires, but there's something much deeper within us. There's a spiritual side and there's a, a logical side. And I think those three things sort of produce the individual. And if, if you go too far in any one direction, I think that you, you tend to lose something in in human experience and just in being. Yeah. And to speak to Nietzsche's own philosophy there, he, it bring back your own point. He knew that that was the case that he, by his critique of the theological, he was accidentally, if not inadvertently, excising a vital part of what it is to be human in the societies that we live in. And he, again, he lamented that. He didn't love that uh, he was saying God was dead. He's saying he basically predicted the next century of totalitarianism, of this will to power. And I mean, if you were to look at this in a aristotelian sense where uh we've got the golden mean right and you're talking about balance between the vices to one degree or the other right the vice of excess or the vice of you know not enough of a, of a good thing the, the the golden mean is the the median in the center and i think that nietzsche had been so abused uh culturally psychologically by the restraining away from that balance point of no don't stay away from excess to the point that you're actually going to be constrained and he wanted to break those chains off not only to get to balance but he exploded the other direction and said no excess excess should be good we shouldn't be holding ourselves away from a pure primal this and that and um in the time that he was doing that that was a, a predictable reaction i mean a lot of the um 
the existentialists, they speak to this, Kierkegaard, uh, Solzhen, um, uh, Dostoevsky, they speak to there is an, a natural inclination for people to want to destroy balance too. They both, we, we all at the same time want to uh, reach a higher transcendental state. Well, at the same time, when we get there, we're the first person that wants to self-sabotage ourselves. And that is a part of being human. And uh, I feel like there was some sort of psychology involved in Nietzsche's direction that he was going that that was almost like a reactionary aspect to why he did what he did against Christianity particularly. It had offended him and, and not only at an intellectual level, but at a visceral level between what happened with his father and like the dichotomy between this supposedly holy man dying a horrible death of, of brain softening that I'm sure was excruciating at a young age. And he had to live mm -hmm. with that. And the man was clearly a genius. Like he was a professor at the age of 25. Like yeah. nobody had done that in that area before he was, he was trapped within this high level cognitive intellectualism that was being um, insulted, I, I feel like, by theology that was very dogmatic at the time. And so this was a lash out back towards that. And I don't think that that was necessarily wrong, but to take it as a holistic worldview is where people like Stalin can justify, you know, the death of a million people as a statistic. Like he has a means to his powerful end that it doesn't really matter how many of his own people he kills en route to that end. The means are insignificant, right? Um, in my impression, the way I'm trying to write this book, I try to, and this is just my own construct that it helps me parse giant topics is I feel like to have a balanced worldview, I consider that you need to have three pillars underneath it. One is the scientific, one is the philosophic, and one's the theologic. And I feel like different parts of time have over-exemplified one of those pillars to the detriment or even derision of the other two, where either they become atrophied um, or you simply have a monolith of a singular pillar holding up an entire worldview. And I think that it's used to be that way with theology for a long, long time. And around the 1800s, there was an inversion that started with, you know, Darwin and, and Laplace. And through that century, it opened up because Nietzsche was like the last half of that century yeah. where he started bringing in the philosophical as well as the psychological aspects of this breakaway from orthodoxical theology. And in that way, coming into the 1900s in the century where we were born and going forward, I think there's been a full inversion where we've got, we went from a, a uh, monotheistic dogmatic singular pillar holding up a worldview of theology and now we've got the opposite where we have science that's maintaining the entire weight of that worldview that it first of all becomes easily disbalanced we saw that over covid where everybody relied on the science and it turned out that that was holding up the space for faith right everybody had to have faith in the science even though the science was clearly not what science was it became dogmatic again we were talking about uh, a orthodoxy that had its own version of you know hierarchical control like this was exactly the 
what they thought they were getting rid of in theology in the 1800s has simply been replaced by science holistically. And this is why people that hold a worldview of atheism, they do that not just to the negation of the theological pillar, but to the derision of it. They want to knock it out completely and just simply hold yourself up on either philosophy and science or just science itself, which, of course, has a bit of philosophy in it. Mm-hmm. I, I really like... Uh, there's a couple things I'd add, you know, I really like your idea of the three pillars and it, it reminds me of kind of what I was just talking about too, with like there being a, with the human being, there's a, there's a physical body, there's a, a mental space, and then there's a spiritual aspect, right? It's, it's a, it's a triune. And I, I think that when you kind of look at it, science is it's the material world it's it's measurement right it's a it's science is kind of like the physical body it's the physical explanation of like here are the facts here are the things we can touch we can see we can experience we can measure and then you have philosophy which is sort of more of the mental side it's it's thought experiments it's uh deductive reasoning it's uh metaphysical questions of like, what, what is existence? It's kind of like the logical mind portion. And then theology again, would be that spiritual side, right? It's, it's putting a faith that there's something that we are not able to really reason about in any meaningful way and that we can't really measure. And I think that Mm -hmm. with science, part of the reason that it's gotten so wrong. And I, I've mentioned this before on my podcast, but I saw this clap, this clip with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, where, he was being questioned about some of the COVID stuff because he was super, super pro vaccine. Um, and basically the guy that was talking to him just was saying, Hey, I think that we should look at some of the data because we're starting to see increased blood clotting and uh, cardiovascular events in, in people. And I think we should just examine this because there are some studies that are coming out that are saying that this is an issue. And Tyson's response was basically that you have to pay attention to, scientific consensus. And I think this is where the science has become dogmatic is like you said, you have to put faith. So when, when science is pure science and it's doing experiments, it's always trying to disprove itself. It's constantly right. It's like, here's the theory. Mm -hmm. And then now let's go out and test this theory and do everything that we possibly can to try to disprove this. That's, that's what science is supposed to do. What science is not supposed to do is it's not supposed to have 20 people that go out and conduct an experiment and 15 people get a result that says a and five people get an experiment or get a result that says B. And so they say, well, 15 of the 20 got a, so we're going to throw out the research of the people that got B. And that's what's happened, right? Is that basically if this is what the majority says, if this is what the consensus says, then we should accept it with absolute faith and basically stop questioning it. And Mm -hmm. again, when it becomes dogmatic, you have issues like looking back, you know, uh, and some people are starting to believe this again, but flat earth, you know, uh, earth at the center of the universe, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different examples of when science became so dogmatic that just everyone believed a certain thing and was unwilling to believe something else or accept any sort of evidence or even just question their preconceived notions. And I think that's, that is where where the danger lies. And I understand for science, like for someone that's not a scientist, everything requires faith, right? Like for, for me to say that the world is round, 
I'm just sort of putting faith in the consensus of science, right? For me to say that gravity exists is in a way me sort of just putting faith in science. Like I can drop an apple and I experience and see that it falls. But, you know, when it comes to what holds the universe together, I just kind of have to put my faith in somebody else that's doing the work. So, you know, even science, it it does require a leap of faith to some extent. But again, that balance, it it can be dangerous if you just put total faith in, in a consensus, I think. Well, this is the problem with having a a monolithical uh, pillar underneath your worldview of of science is it doesn't just knock out the other two, but it actually takes up the space of it. So it's, it's, you actually require faith still, which is a affect of theology, which is the the theological uh, part of that balance that's supposed to be there. So they don't like, it's funny because I, I put this in my book that, I was trying to figure out like what is the major differentiator between theology, philosophy, and science when it comes to theology? Like what is it actually bringing to the table that the other two don't have? And there's a difference uh, analogy or mind image that I use of these three and the way that they interact, and it's along a spectrum. So if you're to look at the far left-hand side of the spectrum, that third of the spectrum would be science. And the middle section, I believe, is philosophy. And then the far right side, that third is theology. So they actually exist upon mm. a sliding scale spectrum where, the interestingly, for the sake of this conversation, the mediator that allows the two extremes to speak to each other is philosophy. You can actually parse the same things in either direction from the philosophical to the theological or from the philosophical to the scientific. But the difference, because we're talking about diametric opposites now between left and right on science and theology. So I was like, so what does theology bring to the case? It must be the opposite of what science brings to, to the table Mm -hmm. and science. It's primary. um, The thing that it holds highest is proof, right? You you talked about empiricism. Show me that it works. I want you to try to disprove it and not be able to, and therefore we know that it is truth. It is empirically true. That is the hardest version of science, right? And that's the far left-hand side of the spectrum, which means that diametrically the far right hand of that spectrum would be faith. That's the thing that not only does theology require, but science has no access to. It's not supposed to have faith. And so for you to start rightfully noticing that science is requiring a lot of faith in all of these different avenues, and it's kind of like one of those things they, they poo-poo and they don't really want to talk about, but they can't really ignore. It's, it's I think, an example of them trying to fill up that, that support system underneath their worldview in a way that doesn't require where it's supposed to be, which is the theological, which is the, you know, the metaphysical in that sense of beyond where, where we're not allowed in the sciences to go very far beyond the material. Like even Mm -hmm. science itself along that spectrum is it blends as it gets closer to philosophy into pure philosophy. And that blending is a differentiation, the type of science where on the one side you have the empirical, that's the hard proof science, but then you start getting into the theoretical and what they call rationalism. And rationalism permits a scientist to think outside of the physical world and start to consider things that you can't show empirically, you can't prove empirically. Theories, including like rigorous mathematical theories that simply cannot be proven in the physical world. They have to be taken on faith again, that this will map correctly onto the truth of the material world. Um, But even if you can never map it onto 
the physical world. Like, for example, part of um, Einstein's theory of relativity predicted something called gravitational waves, which if uh, we live in a universe of four dimensions, the fourth dimension being space time and that space and time being locked together, you affect one, it affects the other, that he presumed that if you had a big enough event in the side of space so he predicted maybe something like a couple black holes colliding with each other in space there would be such an enormous event that would happen that waves throughout matter space would also affect time as it dilated through and this was predicted a hundred years before they ever got the first uh, measurement of this happening now First of all, that's a great example of good science working from the theoretical into the empirical. But it took a 100 years for them to find that first proof in the empirical. There are all sorts of examples in the quantum or in the atomic level uh, physics that we just take basically upon theoretical knowledge on rationalism. And that's considered mm -hmm. okay. Right. There is faith there. And we may never prove a lot of that stuff or it could be completely wrong. And we believe that it's right in the time that we believe that it's the best theory, like string theory, for example. A lot of people just believe it is the best theory because Stephen Hawking liked it, you know, and there is a lot of that appeal to authority that is, again, a direct inversion of what theology was before. There's gatekeepers, right? There's a hierarchy mm -hmm. where you um, I was just talking to a guest that you had on recently. Spencer Clavin on my own show. Yeah. And I brought up the example of the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther became this radical because what he was doing was disseminating free information to the people because there was a gatekeeping mechanism through the theological apparatus of that time that was all about power. They specifically right. were only allowed to have the sacred texts being disseminated by the sacred people of the order, right? So the bishops and the priests and those that could read, by the way, double gate kept Latin. It was only ever in Latin. So they knew that the regular plebs out there couldn't speak Latin and they didn't have access to the books where the sacred knowledge was anyway. So you're going to have to take my word that what I'm telling you is real. Well, I mean, look at what we're doing now. We've got science to say, well, it's a little technical. There's a bunch of jargon in there that is proprietary. You have to go through years and years of uh, doctoral understanding to be able to even speak the language that we speak. But since you're so simple, you can just take my word upon it. And therefore, thusly, we're going to social distance. We're going to shut down society. We're going to mask your children. We're going to have this proprietary vaccine that isn't actually a vaccine. And everybody's going to believe that this is true. We're going to trust the science because you don't have access to this sacred knowledge it's the exact inversion we've built the same gatekeeping mechanism and we're supposed to like bow ourselves before lord fauci and just believe that this is the correct knowledge because how would we possibly know different and we're supposed to be okay with that as well we're supposed to be like oh well this is almost like a version of dharma where i know my place in the universe and i don't have access to these these great uh vast repositories of knowledge and therefore because i'm so lowly and so small who am i to try to you know learn or become better or improve myself and this is what made nietzsche so frustrated with theology is like how dare you i'm smarter than you i can see the the charlatan 
things you're doing. I can see the, the tricks you're trying to pull. I can see your dishonesty. Be honest with me. Come into an honest conversation and you'll be ripped apart. And so he did for years. He ripped them apart in his own writings. One thing interesting about Nietzsche too, is it was all self-serving. And I don't say that in a bad way, but he was never famous in his own lifetime. I think he only ever right. sold 500 books. You know, like he was discovered after he died in 1900. And then he got taken up by the academies. And then he got taken up by the acolytes and intellectuals. In his own time when he was writing it, it was his own personal rage against the orthodoxy. It was his own rage against the machine. It was very punk rock back in the day, you know. But there's something to that. There's a honesty to that that people are starting now to to bring into the space we're at with our own orthodoxy that we're we're fighting the machine of. And it it is that it's a visceral thing. We're not doing it for fame. We're not doing it because we're so smart. We're doing it because we can see that something is wrong there. And there's a natural reaction and inclination for people to try to find the errors in the prescribed truth and be like, no, look, this is actually true. And this comes back to layers too. This is why I, I've started to parse my thinking into layers of truth. If there's a total emet, if there's a total truth of all true things out there, and we simply can't know it all because we simply can't. I mean, besides the fact that there's just too many things for us individually or communally to all know as a knowledge base, um, I think that there's all sorts of parts of total reality that we simply don't have access to. There's layers of like the mm -hmm. ethereal that we just don't have access to, and certainly not at the empirical level. So the best that we can do is build out these proprietary ontological networks of true things we know on this layer, true things we know on that layer, and put a line between the two. And we build out this branching network of, well, this is what truth is, and we map it onto the world. And it seems to map pretty good. So we think that we know the truth, but there's so much... Um, lies of omission that are happening either advertently or inadvertently where there's parts of a total layer that we don't quite understand or we don't even know that we're there you don't know what you don't know kind of thing and all of a sudden we'll run into these um reformation events where our ontological network branched too far and it can't bear the weight of actual reality upon its its disparate branches and it collapses upon itself this is something that thomas kuhn talked about in the 1970s when he talked about the scientific revolutions his science doesn't actually progress one step at a time it progresses until it falls upon itself and it, it creates this revolution it's just a cycle of revolution after revolution after revolution mm -hmm. i think that speaks to the point that every single time we rebuild from from base point from datum we're building a proprietary network that maybe this one maps better than the last one but you can't honestly believe that it's the total truth that you're looking at and now when you look at different layers this is where the errors of conflation happen either in a uh gracious sense their errors or sometimes people use this maliciously where they'll purposely conflate yeah. layers and i think that this is what's happening with the progressive movements broadly speaking these days they're the best at what i consider term warfare where they can redefine terms and they use that as a weapon to try to seed a conversation into a false reality so mm -hmm. for example an obvious difference between two different layers of truth where something can be true within the layer that you're talking about but it's actually not true in a different layer that intersects it is the difference between the mental the cognitive and the visceral or the physical and so what we're seeing right now in the trans movement is a perfect example of that they're saying I identify as X. You can't tell me that my subjective understanding cognitively of what and who I am is wrong. Therefore, that's true. And look, that's the case. You can actually believe 
all sorts of things in the cognitive space that are a truth to the person doing the believing. Like this, there's entire um, wards of people filled with people who think that they are things cognitively that they physically aren't, right? They call them, um, uh, I was going to say dystopias. What's the word? Uh, um, what is it? God, I'm going to trip over my terms here. Um, what are words anyway? Right. It just, yeah, every, yeah, everything the, just gets corrupted. Anyways, they, they're a misappropriation uh, a conflation that happens between layers of the cognitive and the and the realistic or the material, I should say, because I'm not saying that the cognitive isn't real. It's real in its own regard, and importantly so. We do most of our work there, but to map it onto the physical reality, you're going to see an incongruency happening when you're saying, well, I am a male, even though my body thinks it's a female. Well, I'm sorry, your body is correct in the layer that it exists all the way down to the chromosomal layer. Like it is female. I'm sorry. That's just what it is. And if you have a uh, problem with that mentally, that's something you're going to have to find balance between. I'm telling you that the correct balance isn't actually lopping off your genitalia. That's not going to help that layer of reality that, that it exists in. And you see actually what happens is you're trying to ram trying to shoehorn in a truth from one layer being the cognitive onto the physical it's going to destroy or corrupt the physical because it doesn't belong there and in a um almost like newtonian sense you're going to get a lashback effect onto the cognitive where now you're living with this false reality in the physical and it leads a lot of people into depression and suicidal ideation because they they know that they've corrupted themselves in a way that's not real and they have to now live the rest of their life like that and it's almost unbearable you see the suicide rates explode after you know massive physical interventions to try to match what is cognitively happening within the person all sorts of different examples the trans one's just the most pop culture one right now but you see this all the time where people conflate layers and this is what I'm trying to figure out in my book is the connection between the different layers that we make, the total emet that exists out there, the total truth that exists and how that, how the interplay between the subjective and the objective exists because we are subjects. Unfortunately, we don't have access to total knowledge and never will. So the best that we can do is to try to find using wisdom as that divining rod as much of the truth as we can to map accurately onto our world with all honesty and and humility well said i mean there's there's tons of tons of points in there i could i could uh touch on and go down you know I, at the very beginning I, I like that you mentioned the 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 triune the three pillars that we talked about and sort of being degrees um where you have a extreme theology, faith, whatever you want to call it on, on one end of the spectrum, you have a philosophy sort of as in the middle as the balance. And then you have a, you know, purely empiricist or scientific worldview on the other. And, um, this is something I, I, I read the, uh, and I, I don't even know how to pronounce it. So you might, maybe you can, uh, do it for me, but it's like the, the Kabbalion, Kabbalion from, yeah, uh, Kabbalion. Yeah. Kabbalion. Okay. So I recently, you know, I read that and one of the things that I really liked was when they talk about everything is a degree. So, you know, every, like love and hate, for example, right, are they're just degrees of one another. They're not 
we, we think of them in terms of polar opposites, but they're just opposite ends of, of one spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. the, the same as light and dark, right? There's, there's these dualities. We think that it's either or, but they're, they're really not dualities. They're just, they're one thing. And there's a, a spectrum that you can go across. And I think that that's a really important distinction in the science, empiricism, philosophy in the middle, and then the faith on the right, right? And when you look at history, there's always these times where we we slide from one extreme to the other. And, you know, for, for many, many years, we we went too far into that dogmatic faith where people in power, people in churches, they use that to their advantage. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church withholding scripture from people like they, they didn't even want people to read the Bible because they might understand that. The, the word was actually different from what they disseminated down to the people. And there was a revolt against that. There was the idea that we wanted to be free. We wanted to be free of dogma. Science was the new way. This was, this was going to lead us into the promised land where everything was just true and measurable. And now we've, we've shifted into the far extreme once again. And I, I often joke with people like when you live in today's world, Right. Imagine being a a 13 year old kid and you wanted to be a rebel when I was like just even 15 years ago. Right. When we were kids, when you wanted to be a rebel, you were a punk rocker. You dyed your hair blue. You spiked your hair up. You wore chains, you know, like now that that's so accepted as like, just no, like just be you express yourself. I mean, you can do the most extreme things, right? You can you can change your sex. You can uh, change your sexual orientation. You can you can go and and rebel against the government. I mean, it's like, it's popular to, to rebel now. Right. So what do you do if you want to rebel now? What, if you want to be a true rebel, you, you become like, you become like a Greek Orthodox Christian, right? Like that's the only way yeah. to, to go against because everything is so permissible. The one thing that is not permissible is like a, a, a genuine faith. There's been this destruction of faith. And in my experience, when we were talking about, you know, I, I went down this sort of dark path of Nietzsche that didn't start out dark and didn't feel dark in the moment. I felt, I felt the light. I felt the the will to power inside of me, like going out and just conquering the world. And I met my, you know, fiance, met this wonderful woman. She's, you know, she's not super into philosophy. She's, she's not like the, you know, the super brainy type like I am, but she's so smart. She's so intelligent. She's so wise. And you know, we were having a conversation, uh, it was early, early in our relationship, but we were talking about philosophy and, you know, the, the question that she kind of posed to me was, you know, you're, you're, you're so smart, you're into this philosophy or your reasoning. She's like, you know, at some point the, your philosophy can never explain everything like, and, and I know this, right. I mean, there, there's philosophical thought experiments that I post about, uh, that, that prove this, right. Like the, the, uh, re- regression ad infinitum of, of, of logic, right? Like you say, okay, what caused this? What caused this? What caused this? What caused this? What caused yeah. this? What caused this? And Aristotle talks about it, right? The unmoved mover at, at some point, there has to be something that exists that is beyond our physical comprehension, our, our mental comprehension. It just, it can't. And so if you believe that there is something that is beyond comprehension and again, like there, there kind of has to be right. Uh, then the only space that makes sense for that is, is something spiritual is something that, that we cannot measure. You can't 
understand it. You can't explain it. Like we, we can do our best, but there, there is, there are things that are, are beyond that, that mental comprehension. And I think the acknowledgement of that is where Kierkegaard talks about the, the leap unto faith is you can follow the logic. You can search endlessly and have this thirst for understanding, but at some point you just have to put your hands up. You stand on a shore and there's no further that you can go. And you have to say, I'm going to believe that there's something beyond this because there, there has mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, before I respond, I remembered the word it's uh, dysphoria. <laughs> so that's, that's okay. the one I was yeah. trying to, to fish out. So yeah, gender dysphoria, it's a difference between cognitive and physical. Anyways, um, when you were talking about that, that one principle in the Kabbalion about the, the differing of degrees and poles, I think they call it, like, mm -hmm. um, there's an interesting aspect of that where if people go and read the Kabbalion, which, by the way, isn't the entire corpus of the hermetic beliefs. I've got a friend right. who's a hermetic who uh, has gone deeply on it. He's like, if you really want to go into it, you're going to go into the emerald tablets and the, the corpus hermeticum. I'm like, okay. But the Kabbalion's yeah. kind of like the tract. It's kind of like the entry level. It's the little flyer that they'll leave for you kind of version of their of their belief system. But it, it parses everything into seven principles. And the one of them was that principle of polarity, right? Where you've got the one side of the extreme and the other side of the extreme. But what's interesting to me about that is they state that the extremes meet at their poles. So this is no longer a spectrum. This is a circle, right? So picture like mm. uh, even a, a good example would be a coin where you have one side of the coin that can never be the other side of the coin except for on the edge where they both meet. And there's that meeting, the connection of extremes that happens in the hermetic belief. And I, I've actually, mm. I asked myself, this was another question I asked myself, how do, do theology and science meet where is the connection because especially at the most extreme end of pure faith and pure empiricism like where is the connection and i actually figured it out too um at least one part of it the connection that that turns this spectrum from a straight line into a circle where one actually feeds into the next and you can go around and around is the the ability to have logic in the material world at all doesn't make sense without some sort of organization, which requires an organizer, right? There's some version of, there's an echo of architect to the world yes. that we live in. So even to, to believe that there is logic to parse science through is an admission to the farthest end of faith. So there's a connection that the universe itself is even logical. There's no reason, logically speaking, that it needs to be logical. It could be completely irrational. And we would just have to find our way through absolute nonsense, chaos, and anarchy. But what we find instead is pure logic. And that speaks again to an organization that required an organizer. And I think that there's a lot of what people call intelligent design. There's a lot of argument in that space that that tries to make that point is like, there's just too much um, pure beauty that isn't subjective. That's clearly objective. It works at the empirical level. That is so um, it, it points to something that is inaccessible. It's, it's anathema at the scientific, but at the same time they use it, they require it to even parse things at a logical level. So I found that interesting. And one more thing you were saying there, uh, going into god i lost my train of thought it's too early in the morning man it, it <laughs> happens we're, we're going well 
the conversation, it's just like there, there's so many branches that you can go off of. At yeah. Any... Yeah. There's something I wanted to say. What were you saying last? Uh, do you remember where you're going? Um, I, I know that we were talking about, uh, you know, meeting my fiance and just kind of the, the Kierkegaard's leap unto faith where you, you follow logic and eventually it takes you to a place of mm. sort of un- in, indiscoverable knowledge and then just yes. kind of okay. deciding to take a leap of faith. Yeah, so there's a a quote or a a piece of uh I guess it's poetry that I started my first book book off with consciousness reality and purpose. It was a a piece from from Lovecraft and I think it speaks to exactly this exploratory uh, endeavor of man. This is just a timeless thing of people trying to uh in Jordan Peterson's words, try to make order out of chaos, right? We exist in pure chaos and our goal is to try to order things into uh, reliable, logical categories so that we can even find our way around this chaos that we're existing in. Um, and it went something to this effect. I'll paraphrase. He said, I th- it's the most merciful thing in the world, I think, man's inability to correlate the contents of his mind. We exist on a placid island of ignorance amidst black seas of infinity and it was never meant that we should journey far the sciences each straining in their own right have hitherto harmed us little but one point there will come a time where the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we'll either go mad from the revelation or we'll flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age and I feel like we're at that mm. crux. People are making their decision. Are you going to go mad from the revelation or are you going to flee from the light into the peace and darkness of a new dark age? Mm. Yeah, I, I I think that that is, and that speaks to what I was talking about ne- uh, earlier, which is like, w- what do you, what do you do now to be a rebel? You, you know, you, you become a Christian, you become, you become a, a Muslim, right? You, you reground mm. yourself to, objective truth. You you say, you know what? I think that the world where everything is permissible and everything is true is not the world that I want to live in. And I'm going to accept some sort of outside governing power to tell me how to live, to tell me what to believe, to tell me what is true and what is good and what is evil. And it, yeah, it goes back to Nietzsche, right? And him saying that, that God is dead and him 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 looking forward uh, 150 years ago, almost, right? That he, he saw the writing on the wall. He saw what was coming for us. And he, he took one decision. He made one decision. And I think that uh, I I thought that that was the decision, you know, even even just a couple of years ago. And I, I, I've, I've changed, my, changed my ways on that. I've changed my views. I think mm-hmm. that... The, the only way, especially now, I mean, at least at least 100 years ago, there were still some remnants of societal structure that kind of held everything together, that held the glue. There was there was a shared morality. There was a, a shared pride in, in your country and America and in certain beliefs and philosophies that held everything together. And the, the new philosophy has completely destroyed that and everything is so fractured there's nothing that unifies us anymore i mean and like i i I frequently talk about and think about how you can have 10 people that live next door to each other 
in, in the exact same state in the same neighborhood. And each family, each person, each head of the household has a completely different view of everything in reality from, from, uh, I mean, politically, uh, religiously, uh, culturally, I mean, we we've never existed in a time where information has made it so possible for 10 people that are neighbors to have completely different realities and hate one another. Um, so, so you have to ask yourself, like, what, what is going to unify us? And like I said, it's I, not I think more from... information. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not. We more thought options. it was, and realistically, it was back in the 1990s when the internet popped off. It was a connectation of everybody around the world. Anyone who had access to a PC and an internet connection, you had connectivity now that didn't exist. Where before, if you had to have somebody's phone number or send them a snail mail or you know meet them in person, now you could actually send email in immediately. You could go and see their web page and you could communicate in eventually video form. And now we've got uh web two. So that was web one was like email and the internet where everybody was just connecting. And now we've got this interconnected network around the world of human brains. And it was like, wow, we've got all of this similarity and we've got all of this unity that we've become this one thing as, as humans online. But then interestingly, what we existed before that was a different version of siloing. Basically it was geographical siloing is where we were in the world was basically mm -hmm. where we were stuck and the beliefs that we were there and you didn't have any access to really interact unless you had books or went to university or tried to get some, uh, you know, learning from another part of the world. And now we've got it, it, this weird fractality that happened where we unified everybody. Okay. Well, we're all together. And then what that ended up doing is actually just breaking into different silos more because what we're doing is increasing the amount of knowledge, the total database of knowledge. Okay. But then there's all of these different proprietary ontological frameworks that start being built as, as we do, we're trying to parse the, the unknown into the known and everybody builds their own version of that and starts it, actually traveling away from each other as this network branches away. And then we find ourselves siloed again, this time, not geographically, but uh, ideologically. And again, to speak to your point about how you can have 10 people in the same block that all believe different things. I was just watching a clip yesterday of a guy that I used to follow in both the scientific and philosophical spaces. That is another one of these um, ardent atheists that absolutely knocked out the theological pillar and thinks that he did himself a service as Sam Harris. And I was mm -hmm. watching a um, – because he, he ended up on the absolute polar opposite side of the spectrum when it came to COVID and all the lockdowns and all of yeah. the overreach and implementation and medical tyranny, et cetera, because they never really affected him. And he's honest about that. He's like, actually, I did really well over COVID and it wasn't really a big deal. And I think that part of why a lot of people can't agree about what just happened for the last three years is because it happened to them all differently. And – they're not lying. It just is the case. Some people like in real estate, they've never had such good years. And other people that were in the martial arts business, for example, uh, you can't really do jujitsu social distance and it, it didn't work very well. And, and we had completely different um, experiences within the same type of uh, implementation, right, of this pandemic. Now, what's yeah. interesting to me, though, is that somebody that is supposed to be so um, intellectually acute as sam harris he's very smart non-dogmatic right yeah. yes rational right he always relies mm -hmm. on rationalism and come back to um pure logic and and all of these things that are going to be his his route to truth he was talking to i think this was the chris x podcast and he was saying you know 
people that I had as friends before, like like uh, Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, they found themselves in this echo chamber of half truths. And it, it was interesting to me because I'm like in just in him saying that. And look, I agree. Everybody basically exists in, in a version of half truths. And we're all trying to sort of connect that missing half. If we're being honest, some people aren't and they think they have the whole truth. And this is where I found the way that Sam said that it's presumed in in the way of him saying that that he existed in in the pure truth and these poor people only had half the truth in their poor silo if they would just open their mind to what i know over here they would realize that i've got the total truth i'm like you you really don't recognize that you're also in a in a siloed echo chamber of half truths and it's this it's this disassociation with with the the honesty of the position that we're all in. If you get your information online, you aren't going to get the total information, even if it exists because we exist in web two right now, which is social media, which, which builds an algorithm to feed you information that it thinks you most want to see. So it's going to play to whatever your uh, proclivities are. So anyways, if, if you aren't doing the extra work to try to find out the news on the other side of the aisle, there's just no way you'll have the total news, but they're going to believe that they do. And so everybody, again, these 10 people on the same block think that they have the total information out there. No, you've got a bunch of information and then you're supposed to either absorb a ontological framework by osmosis, just take it on faith that what Tucker Carlson says is the total truth or, you know, what Sam Harris says is the total truth or people do their own research and they try to figure out their own truth and they build out their own little thing. And, and everybody is in this position where we've got so much knowledge, but so little wisdom in what to do with it. And I think that we need to come back to a point of honesty, of, of like realistic introspection of a faith that there can be and is a certain amount of total reality that we don't have access to, whether it's by dint of the knowledge that we are gleaned, the structures uh, ontologically that we've built, or the fact that there's just so much of total reality we can't know that actually intersects with the parts that we do that we don't recognize are having effects upon us. I mean, that's humbling, right? It should leave you in awe, not like, oh, I, I'm just going to figure it all out. It's just like a matter of time before we can find the physical mechanism to describe what consciousness is. And until then, I'm not going to mm -hmm. believe that it's not physical, right? You've got people out there like um, the Stuart Hammerovs of the world and the uh, Roger Penroses that are trying to find a physical mechanism in the human brain that permits consciousness. I'm like, okay, um, you're still not defining what consciousness is, though. There's there's no actual definition mechanistically, physiologically of why we should experience experience at all and that we do. And there's this strange disconnect. Again, I was talking to uh, uh, Clavin the other day yeah. with you can have these people that come down to these hyper rationalistic scientific um, explanations mechanistically of why this and that and the other. And then they go out into the world and have experience. <laughs> and it's like, OK, you spent yeah. all this time trying to uh cleave away the the rationality from the experience and then you go out and experience life i'm like what what a dishonest way to live you know what i mean like they have love and they have lust and they have envy and they have empathy and they have all these things that make no scientific sense and they'll be like well evolution just wanted me to have it and therefore we're going to find somewhere along the the line of evolution why it was uh you know, an advantageous thing to have love. And therefore that's why it exists hormonally and chemically inside you. Like you're not actually just defining you're, you're 
confining yourself to the restraints of physiology to explain things that simply aren't physiological. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird balance too. And, uh, I, I thought that was something that Spencer said that was really, you know, that really resonated with me too. It was one of the clips I used from his uh, appearance, but it, it's interesting, right? Because there's this obsession with the physical measurable scientific world, but then a lot of the things that we see are sort of celebrations of human emotion and subjectivity. Um you know, trans is, is an example, right? Like we're, we're told like you have mm -hmm. to believe in the science, everything is physical, but then we're supposed to trust someone's emotion or impulse or decision that they are something other than what they were born as. You see the same thing in health, right? Like it, it's very clear that if you don't want to be overweight, uh, you exercise and you eat healthy foods, right? Now there's debate on what's healthy foods, but at the end of the day, cut out processed foods, eat better, make more whole food choices and exercise, you're going to lose weight. And despite that, you know, we're basically, we're told to celebrate, you know, like fat and beautiful, right? It's just, we have to, mm -hmm. we have to celebrate it because it's someone's emotion. We, we say that, you know, everything should be logical and scientific and measurable, but then these, you know, these same people go out and they, they scream and they, they bring out hate. And they, like you said, they, they cheat on their wives and they, they, they do all these like emotional human things that make no logical sense, but we, we still do it. We still fall in love, even though, you know, love is just a, a, a display of chemicals inside of our brain that tells us that we have a connection to someone. And it's just, you know, it's just really madness, but then they'll still tell someone that they love them. They'll still search for that connection and that romance in a relationship. So it, it is, it is interesting um, how much emphasis there is on subjective experience and emotion well, at the same time, d declaring the the superiority and the unquestionability of of, of science and, and the empirical world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's the power to having those three pillars uh, sustaining your worldview upon is that you can find the answer to any question in any given one of them. It's just going to be from the restrained perspective that it allows, right? So you can find a scientific definition for what love is. You can find a philosophic definition for what love is, and you can find a theologic definition for what love is. And I think love is all of those things. And to say that it's only one and it's not the other, especially from those poles, from the scientific to the theological, you're doing yourself a disservice you're missing a large portion of what the value of the thing you're trying to describe is. And if you feel like that is enough for you, well, great, but it's going to actually change your, your experience in the life that you live because you still live in a met, you still live in total truth. It's, it's all interacting with you. And even if you don't want to allow it into your cognitive um, thought processes, it doesn't change the fact that it's happening to you. And so you're going to have a version of false reality you're existing in that isn't going to map just perfectly onto the world in the way that you think it does. Well said. I, I'm, I'm definitely interested. Uh, you gotta, you gotta let me know when you get the next book out. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it, it sounds right up my alley. I'm interested to, to see, you know, what you come up with. So well, to... as it stands right now, I, I I'm, uh, I'm, breaking it into three major portions. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I seem to have a thing with threes, but uh, it's 
truth in science, truth in philosophy, and truth in theology. I've written the truth in science. I'm halfway through the truth in philosophy right now, so I'm technically about halfway through the book. And part of the reason why I wanted to pick your brain on Nietzsche is because that's the part of philosophy I'm at right now in truth and philosophy, because I think he brought a lot of truth to the conversation, but not the whole truth. And then, of course, the to the derision of the missing parts is what brought the possibility of these you know, powerful psychopaths to justify themselves. Sure. Yeah, and any anytime anytime you wanna you wanna talk Nietzsche or you know pick my brain on anything, always feel free to hit me up, shoot a message, hop on a call, whatever. But um to to kind of wrap up on the show, I got you know four questions. I like to always ask my guests um just a little bit of like practical wisdom that maybe people we, we talked a lot of about very uh <laughs> very like metaphysical hypothetical things so to to give the listeners some concrete stuff maybe they can they can take off into their daily life um do do you have any daily habits that you like to run through um definitely so i'm actually a huge advocate of consistency if you want to become great at anything or have great results through anything consistency is basically the um the life hack that will lead to that. So I was mm-hmm. always consistent with my jujitsu training. It just led towards a black belt as like a matter of fact, you know, it's, um, I I've had consistency with my meme account that I have on Instagram. It grew it to the largest of its type in the world. It's like 180,000 followers on Instagram. I've got people like Joe Rogan that are following it. And the, the reason why it's, gotten good like first of all I've, I had a proclivity to it I had some comedic bents but at the same time I haven't missed a single day posting a brand new meme for eight years every single day of every single year including weddings funerals pandemics I haven't missed a single day and it's built that type of empire essentially and it's just consistency right uh, mm-hmm. Same thing could be said exactly what you're saying with health is if you can consistently eat right, if you can consistently exercise just at all, it doesn't have to be what the rock does, but just at all, if you keep doing yeah. it every day, the difference between who you are physically today and a year from now, 365 iterations of that will build a new physical you, period. It's not a question of will it, it's a question of will you, right? So I think consistency is is the the, the the real life hack to, to life in general, if you want to get good at something, start it, keep doing it. Mm, that great. That's really great advice. And I, I agree with you hundred percent. I think it's people fail to realize that I think it's better to do a little bit consistently than it is to try to go a hundred percent on stuff. And I always tell people like I'm in the fitness industry when people ask like, well, how many days a week should I work out? And what, what should I eat? I'm like, all right, do this, cut out process, like try to cut out processed foods, like no, no more like processed like breads and things like that. You know, try try to eat more whole foods, what like, you know, eat just real meat, real fruits, real vegetables, whatever. I'm, I'm doing like a carnivore thing where I just eat meat and fruit. Yep. That's pretty extreme for some people. So whatever. So just cut out processed foods. You're going to be healthier, right? It's nothing extreme. Don't worry about a diet. Don't worry about counting macros, cut that stuff out cut out, you know, sugary drinks, no more juices. And the second thing is, you know, spend 20 minutes, you know, every single day, you know, Monday through Friday, going to the gym. Don't, don't try to go in and do these like Arnold style bodybuilding workouts and try to try to gain a hundred pounds of muscle in six weeks. Like just literally just 20 minutes a day, just go to the gym, whether it's getting on a treadmill, whether it's doing a treadmill and some weights, once you're there for 20 minutes, you're going to stay a little bit longer anyway. 
but just tell yeah, yourself 20 minutes I goes by fast. Do, yeah. Tell yourself, I got to do 20 minutes. If, if you do 20 minutes and you eat better in a year, you know, in, in six months, in three months, your health is going to be markedly better. So I think that you, you definitely, you can't, uh, you can't overemphasize the importance of consistency in, in life in general. Mm-hmm. What about, obviously you're a, you're a big reader. Uh, it's, it, it's obvious, right? You, you've gone through a lot of different stuff. What, what are your top two book recommendations for someone wanting to just learn more? Yep. Um, I want to sort of adjust one thing you said there. I, I take in a lot of information. A lot of times it's through audiobook and a lot of times it's through podcasts and listening to experts and specialists. So okay. um, there's this interesting avenue a lot of people have nowadays to get uh, a massive influx of information in the same consistency manner where every single day they're listening to an audiobook or a podcast or mm-hmm. both. And that's been in my life for like, I don't know, 10 years now. So it's just been this. Uh, unanticipated acclimation and aggregation of information that's that's built uh, i think just a very wide periphery of different interests and and perspectives but if i were going to pick a couple books um certainly ones that have been useful to me recently um there's one by a guy uh psychologist i think he's from belgium by the name of matthias desmet and he came out with a book uh during the pandemic called the psychology of totalitarianism and this is kind of a a nod to uh hannah arendt's um you know magnus magnum opus that she did after the second world war that um was a different of totalitarianism but this is the psychological look and he he spoke to um this mass formation that happens that was him that kind of coined that phrase during the pandemic and it's it brings an interesting perspective upon system-wide dynamics of humans and how we can affect each other psychically and i'm not talking about palm reader psychically i mean like at the level of your psyche that you can and do take on the attributes of a mob or a crowd during certain types of actions, emergencies, um, existential realities. This, this happens all the time. You see it with uh, mobs of people after a sports game, or you see it with mob of people after their political team loses, you know, whatever it is, they, they will do things that they would never do. Or even if there's, there's great examples of people that walk into a mob like after a soccer game that are smashing and looting and flipping cars and they actually start doing it too. There's this like almost psychic infection that happens and, and you do these things that you would never do as an individual and and certainly wouldn't even, um, you know, try to justify after the fact that people are embarrassed with the way that they act. And you see that after the pandemic too, because there was a massive mass that formed during the pandemic. Some people called it mass formation psychosis. Right. And, um, that's a great book to get into that whole avenue. Um, and then another one here recently, I'm trying to think about, there's there's a, a few I'm bouncing around in my head. I should have prepared for this because I know you asked this question. Um, man, go read my book. <laughs> yeah, <there laughs> Do you that. Go. I'll, right. I'll self-promote. There you go. There's too many awesome. of, of the audio books bouncing around in my head. Cool. What about, uh, do you have any, like any personal heroes or anybody that you particularly look up to? Hero is a word that I have a hard time grasping with, to be honest, because yeah. I can appreciate or aspire to things people have done or, you know, achievements I can recognize. 
but I don't really hold any heroes. I've, I've met too many of them. I'll put it to you that way. I've, I've met people through, you know, the entertainment industry of that you would call celebrities. I've met people in the jujitsu area that you people would idolize, right. Whether they come from a lineage of the Gracie family, or if they're a multiple time world champion, people, you know, you'd expect a 10 year old to have posters on their wall of, and it's, everybody's just people, man. Like when you start recognizing that we're all just doing the same thing in different ways, it's idolization doesn't even make sense to me anymore. So I don't really have a hero for the sake of what that definition would be. Um, I try to take and glean away some of the um, admirable attributes of certain people, but uh, I don't, I don't really do the hero worship thing. Yeah. that That's very well said. And I feel like if, if there is, a, a answer. I, I think that the, the, the best answers that I get when I ask this question are either someone that's in your family, you know, your, your parents, um, you know, a, a spouse, uh, a brother, sister, someone that you're really, really, really connected to because you, you understand them on a different level than someone that you just idolize. Right. And it, it's, I think to, you know, to look at your dad as a hero, your mom as a hero, something like that. I mean, that, that's a very beautiful thing. And I think the other you know, very good answer is just, just what you said, which is, you know, I don't really have any heroes. I, I take components of someone's personality and I, I maybe look up to them or aspire to be like them in this area, but they're not, uh, you know, they're, they're not this like person that I bow down to and hero worship. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. And all right. The, the last question, this is, you know, kind of the, the stumper, but if, if you were able to hop into a time machine, go back in time, you know, a handful of years, maybe to a, a teenage you and give yourself a piece of advice, a younger you, what would it be? Yeah. Um, part of that is counterfactual in nature because who I am today is because of what I did before. Yeah. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But if I was to try to Dr. Strange this or Loki this in a way that I could make like a little adjustment in the timeline that would branch it off a little bit in a different direction. One, one major regret that I had is I never got into history until I was in my thirties. And I think that if I had uh, either a good teacher or a good Avenue that interested me, because the one that actually interested me and got me into it was Dan Carlin. And I didn't get into his works until I was, you know, a journeyman welder in my thirties. And I just had 12 hours welding that I needed some podcasts in my ear. And this guy made six hour podcasts. So I put them in my ear and I learned about, you know, the Mongols and I learned about world war two and world war one. I learned about the cold war and all these things like the Roman empire and all, all these things that I think if they were, if I had access to that type of interesting version of history earlier, I'd be a lot further along on that side of my knowledge. So that's, simply because it was so I felt like inaccessible at that age because I didn't have the avenue. If I had the avenue, I probably would have been better off for it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you, I think you took like the two most popular answers and put them together. It's, it's like, you know, you just sort of kind of go forward because your experience is going to make you who you are. Um, and, you know, the other one that I hear a lot is just kind of to, to wrap up all of the different answers in, in one comprehensive idea is to be more mindful of your time to learn more, you know, that, that sort of thing. I think that uh, we can never go wrong to try to learn more, to experience more as a human being. So, 
I'd like to add something to that too. And this is something that I, I think I talked about a little bit in my previous book, but I got from Alan Watts, who was a philosopher and, mm -hmm. and theologian in his own right, because he kind of brought Eastern theology into vogue in the 1960s and 70s in the Western side of the world. And he he was talking about the idea of time and of meaning and of like, what is your purpose in life? And people, he's like, people get so tied up in finding their purpose and their meaning and they miss the point that they're living while they're doing it. The whole yeah. point at the very base level of life is that you are alive. It doesn't really matter if you're suffering or, or thriving, you are alive to experience it. And what a, a privilege and a joy that should be when you recognize it. He's like, I wish that, uh, philosophy was done in hospitals because there's so much you can learn from that part of existence of experience and just the fact that you're experiencing experience at all really needs to be I think valued in a way yeah. that regardless of whether you find yourself in a bad or a great place in life you know you you, you want both because that that's the totality that you have the time to exist and experience in at all. As far as we know right now, you definitely have this time to experience life. So just live and enjoy the experience. Yeah, that, that that's a really good point. I mean, it's it's about consciousness and presence, right? About being in the moment because you can you can be like Eckhart Tolle and you can sit on a park bench and be broke and and look at the the birds flying through the sky and gaze up into the, to the sun that illuminates our world and feel the grass on your feet and to, to really be present and experience the moment and realize how beautiful it is. And likewise, you could be on a, you can be on a private yacht in the middle of the ocean, uh, in, in the French Riviera, like thinking that you're being in one of the most beautiful places you could possibly be. And you're just stressed out because like your, your stocks just dropped 10%. Right. And you, you know, you're not yeah. even there. You're, you're taking a business phone call and you're arguing with your wife on the phone. So it's like, who, who had the more meaningful moment in, in that experience, mm -hmm. the person that had nothing that was just present and enjoying life or the person that presumably had everything, but they were too busy to, to experience it. So I think that's a, mm -hmm. I think that's a really good, really good, uh, insight there. So, um, Drew, I had a great time talking with you. If, if anybody wanted to look you up, find out more about you or your work, uh, what's the best way for people to, to look you up or reach out? Sure. Um, I'm on Instagram primarily, so you can find me both on the podcast page, <clears throat> which is social disorder podcast with underscores. Um, or my personal page, which is drew.weatherhead for jujitsu. I've got my meme page that's on there too. Uh, you can find in the information, but check out my book, Consciousness, Reality, and Purpose. It's available in hardcover and paperback as well as audiobook and Kindle on Amazon. So you can check it out digitally or physically, however you like to intake your knowledge. And uh, I've got a podcast called the social disorder podcast where I'm podcasting five times a week. That's another thing that I've been very consistent with over the last year and a half. We're coming up on almost, I think 365 episodes in the next week. So, um, all sorts of topics that we cover there. I take it from all sorts of different angles, political and, and sociological and philosophical. So uh, if you enjoyed what I was saying here, that's probably the best place to take me in. Awesome. And I didn't realize 365 was coming up, but congrats, man. I mean, I'm, I thought I was like, I feel like I'm doing well because I'm doing one podcast a week and I've, I've been sticking with it. This is like, you know, I don't know. I've recorded like 25 episodes. Uh, I think there's 20 out right now at the time of recording, but 
to, to do one a day. I mean, that that's awesome. That, that is uh that is, that's real consistency and, and dedication there. So yeah, very, yeah, very and cool it, it is what it is. You'll, you'll get to where you get to because of that. I, I consider it my full-time job. I'm like, I could work a day job. And if I only had to work two hours a day, that's actually not that hard. So that's, that's what I figure. I'm sure. like, I'm going to put in the work. This is a job. I'm going to take it seriously. I want to do it professionally. And so oh, a couple of hours a day, this is a part-time job. Anybody can do that. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again for the the conversation today. It's got my, my wheels turning. I'm going to be thinking about some of this stuff for the rest of the day, I'm sure. Um, thanks again for coming on and hope you have a good rest of your day. Awesome. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, and hopefully you learned at least one lesson on today's episode. Our mission here is to uncover practical wisdom to create a better way of living for our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us by leaving the show a review on your podcast platform of choice and by giving it a share on social media. This really helps us to grow our audience and to continue to add more episodes. If you are interested in learning more, please check out our website at renaissance-wisdom.com or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, now on Amazon. Thank you again, and may wisdom be your guide.